Hello, everyone, and welcome into another edition of the To The Point podcast. Everybody's doing well on this beautiful Thursday as we have an interesting day in the world of sports where hockey is idle until the expansion draft next week. Uh, we'll see what Seattle, Seattle crack and what their team looks like. I'm excited for that to kind of dive into their team working on a podcast, um, hopefully for the beginning of next week, maybe this weekend, where we can um, pick, we pick the roster, you know, we go through each team, we, we select a player from each team, hoping to do a round table like that this week. Um, no guarantees, but I'll keep you guys posted on that front. Hopefully this weekend, maybe early next week, um, that'll be uh, dropping and available to you. Um, so hockey's idle. But a lot happening. You know, this week you see Zach Prize get bought out. You see uh, Ryan Suter get bought out. You see some uh, moves. But today there was a buyout, which we'll get into. But one of the premier defensemen for the Montreal Canadiens' career could be over. And, you know, I'll, I'll tease it. I'm sure if you've heard the news, but a, a leader, a great player could be done in the game of hockey at the age of 35 after just a fantastic playoff run. So we'll get into that. Toronto Maple Leafs have to stay relevant uh, somehow. So today they dropped news on Zach Hyman. We'll get into that news. We'll talk about Keith Yandel, Anthony Duclair, Gustav Forsling. Busy day for the uh, Florida Panthers today as they've re-upped some guys and also let one of their long-term tenants, so to speak. Um, they gave him his walking papers, and he's free and clear to go um, elsewhere around the NHL. So we'll get into that. Um, also the NBA finals last night, game four, uh, Milwaukee bucks, evening the series at two apiece. uh, really a frustrating game for Phoenix where they really should have won, but two guys were no shows. And I'll get into that later. And just one of the greatest blocks in the history of basketball last night, um, from Giannis Antetokounmpo. So we'll get into all that. And also, but we're going to start today by talking about the British Open, or as they like to say across the pond, the Open Championship, because it's more important than every other major, but that's just, you know, Britain and the people like at Wimbledon, the way they, you know, spruce it up and make it sound better than it actually is. Great, great course at Royal St. George's, but I'm sorry, the British Open, you'll never be better than Augusta. And to be honest, I don't know if you're better than the U.S. Open, but nevertheless, the last major of the season it's an interesting major because, you know, golf was played this morning at 4 a.m. local here, Atlantic time here in, in uh, New Brunswick, because they're a few hours ahead in, in uh, London, of course. And, you know, as of in about 10 minutes time, they'll, everybody will be off the course finishing their first round. So it's very different from your conventional tournament in the U.S. where you have, you know, 9 a.m. tea times. And they're finished today at, at you know, seven o'clock local. So in, interesting tournament in that sense where you, the tournament is done earlier in the day. But you head into this, and I talked about this yesterday with Casey. I didn't have a great feel of who was going to win this. You know, I really felt like John Rahm was the guy to win the U.S. Open. I predicted that he would win, and he did. Uh, and after the memorial and him having COVID and just everything, you know, sometimes karma just comes back and, and it shows itself and, and it does good, not bad. And I believe that was for the good where John Rahm captured his first career major. But heading into this one, I didn't have a feel. You know, we had 13 withdraws before this tournament started, including Masters champion Hideki Matsuyama, 
former U.S. Open champion Zach Johnson, former two-time Masters champion Bubba Watson. So it wasn't it was just a, you know, a slew of guys who have never won a major. These guys are, are in majors. They're, they stay relevant. Bubba Watson has played some really good golf in the last number of weeks. So we've seen some elite players tap out. But then you look at the top of the board when it comes to golfers this season. The big names haven't been that great. You know, Rom, yes, Kepka's been good in the majors, but Rory has missed two of the three cuts at the majors. DJ has missed two of three cuts at the majors. Justin Thomas has missed a cut at a major, and the two others, he really was not in contention. He was out of it early. So those are just some of the big biggest names in golf where you're saying, who's going to take this home? There's no, I didn't have a, a good sense. I, I, in my mind, it was just, it's not going to be a big name. It's not going to be one of the big boys. Somebody will come out of left field. That's what often happens at the, at the open championship. And, you know, we see today at the leaderboard, there are some, some big names, but the guys at the top aren't exactly household names that you think of all the time. But let's start off looking at the top leaderboard today. You know, this guy doesn't surprise me that he's at the top of the leaderboard after day one because he's been the most consistent major player this year. When it comes to average score, finish a major, he is number one. Kepka is number two this season. Um, obviously, they haven't won a major this year, but just they both um, finished second at the PGA. Um, and this man leading this tournament finished second at the U.S. Open. So back-to-back second-place finishes. And that would be Uncle Louis Ostazen, as I like to call him, from South Africa, where he's played fantastic this year at the majors, and he often does. He has 10 second-place finishes in his career. He has one major to his credit. That was 11 years ago at this very tournament. And he starts off today just a back nine where he shoots four under, great play. And he's just, he doesn't bomb it, but he keeps it on the greens. He's a consistent putter. He can, and he just, he scrambles and finds a way to be effective. And for him, you can't win the tournament on the first day, but you can certainly lose it. And he shoots six under par. That's a high score. You don't see that a lot. The majors, we think of the PGA and the U.S. Open. There are tougher courses than Royal St. George's has been thus far for players. I think we will see it become tougher throughout. They'll change pin locations, things of that nature. But Luio stays in is just a consistently good player at the majors. Now he's not a finisher. And just because he's leading today, I don't expect him to win the British Open. Because we've seen already twice this year, he's gone into Sunday, either tied for the lead or had the outright lead, and he lost both times. So John Rahm scrambled to beat him at, at the at the US Open where he birdied 17 and 18. And at at the US Open, again, him and Kepka's him at the PGA, sorry, him and Kepka struggle down the stretch. Phil Mickelson is able to overcome it and and win miraculously at the age of 50. So I don't have a whole lot of confidence, but you know he's going to be involved. I expect him to be in the top five, top 10 come Sunday, because he always is. He'll be in one of the last three groups. I'd be surprised if he wasn't because he's not a guy that just throws it away. Now, I could see him shooting even par tomorrow, which would hurt him significantly because guys are shooting well at this course. But he would still be in the mix because there's a lot of guys who are, you know, shoot that have shot well today that won't tomorrow. That's just the nature of the sport. If they can have a 
a minus one or an even par day, you'll take that more often than not, where some guy who finished, you know, one over will have a great day tomorrow and kind of get back in the mix and hopefully be a factor come the weekend. But below Uncle Louie stays in, we have the American Brian Harmon, who has never won a major. He's a guy who you see him a, a couple of times, uh, once every couple of years, he will win an event on tour. He's a guy that, that likes to play lower, lower events and he gets some high finishes, but he's not exactly a guy you expect to see at, at this stage. Um, I don't think he'll be a factor. Um, a great day today. And who knows? Like I said, I don't expect a big name to win the British Open. So maybe Brian Harmon can do it. But, you know, he starts off on a great note. You can't, like I said, start the first day off right. And who knows where it goes from here. Then following Harmon, also tied at 500 par for tied for second, is Jordan Spieth, which is interesting because Jordan Spieth won the lead up event to the Masters. It was his first win in over three years. He was in the bottom of the barrel of his career after a great start, after choking the Masters away, after choking away a U.S. Open. He was on the downward spiral. He was having fights with his caddies often, and it looked like Jordan Spieth, the, the next phenom of golf, was gone. He, he was just not, wasn't meant to be the next face of the sport. And this year, he wins that event. He, fin- he placed in the top five at two others. But in the majors, he hasn't exactly been the biggest factor. And, you know, could it be Jordan Spieth's time? Could he win another major here at the British Open? Well, Louis got one major. Spieth's got more majors than Louis. But, and Spieth's just got a better game. He's a, he's a better driver of the golf ball. I think his, his approach shot is good. And when, he's, when Jordan Spieth can get confident, when he's confident on the golf course, he is one of the best golfers in the world, period. And if he can find some confidence, then, you know, the sky's the limit for this guy because he just, he's got the confidence, he's got the game, he's got the swagger, and he'll play with that. He'll have a good sense, a really good sense of where he's at in his game. And don't expect him to just fade away because he's too good of a player to be knocked out. So speed being this high is great. I think for golf, because looking below speed, who is a big name who will draw viewership. Now he isn't tiger woods. He isn't Phil or he isn't even um, John Rom or Rory McIlroy for that matter, but he's still a guy that people know. They know him for his failures more than his successes in the recent uh, years. But again, people will tune in to see Jordan speed to say, could he potentially get to the top of the mountaintop again, win the last major of the season? That would be a successful year and really a reclamation project uh, on his young career. But below him, you have Stuart Sink. Stuart's uh, in his early 40s, um, but interesting about him, he's won two events on tour this year. at Above the age of 40, which is just crazy to think about, he's one of three guys that have won at least two events on tour, himself and DeChambeau. Um, are, are two of them and he, they he's just a, a consistently what, what's great about Stewart is a great putter and he's usually got one of his kids or his wife um, caddying him so he's a, he's a good story in that sense and winning twice this year who knows um, again it's a major lots of things can happen but good start for him then we have Mackenzie Hughes the Canadian also at four under Mac ha- had a tough go at the U.S. Open where 
He was in the final group, but Luis stays in on a Sunday, and it blew up for him. He fell outside the top 10, obviously lost a chance at winning a major, lost a chance at winning a lot of prize money, but he had a great attitude. I've heard him interviewed several times on the Rain Drake's podcast. He said it, it taught him a lot. You know, it was a tough lesson to learn, obviously, being in that position, um, lose, you know, having, a, having that opportunity and seeing slip away, um, having a really tough day, hitting that ball, the golf ball into the trees. It was just a disaster for him. But he's played a few tournaments since. He's had mixed bag results. But you see his first round of a major since that disaster. He comes out today and shoots four under par. That's a great start to the tournament for Mac. And, you know, in the past, it's been, well, Corey Connors is really the major threat for, for Canada. If there's going to be a Canadian that wins a major, it's definitely going to be Corey Connors. But I don't. I think he's got all the intangibles just as just as well as Corey. He can drive. He can drive the uh, the golf ball far. He's a confident. He's got a confident approach, and his putt looks, you know, clean and smooth. So I think Mackenzie Hughes is just a bigger threat to win a major, as is Corey Connors. I mean, Canada's got two good golfers are going to represent us at the Tokyo Olympics in a few weeks, so we're in good shape there. But what a story would be if Mac could win the British Open, then go to Tokyo and see what happens. But just to have that momentum going in, him or potentially Corey, because Corey Connors, the other Canadian, shot two under today. So both guys had decent days. You know, Corey's still in the, right in the mix, four strokes back. But, you know, Mac shooting four under, tie with Stuart Sink and Webb Simpson, it's a pretty good group to be in to start the tournament. And what he did at the, at the U S open was just build on it. Don't let it fall away. You know, you might have a plus one in a round here, um, but you can, we can see what can happen. Um, we'll see what happens here, but I good start for the Canadians uh, at, at the open championship. And it's good to see just some Canadians have some Canadian content. Adam Hadwin did not have as good a day. He shot five over par likely going to miss a cut and he could very well lose his tour card then in the next couple of weeks. So he, he went from a guy that people thought, well, this guy could win a major too. He's not even in the it mentioned when it comes to Canadian golfers and who's the future and potentially could, could break through and win a major like Mike Weir did uh, at Augusta national in 2004. Um, following them, we have Colin Morikawa last year's PGA championship winner, three under Scotty Scheffler, who's another guy. I think he's, right on the doorstep of winning a major. He's shot a 59 last year. He's got a great stroke. He's a confident guy. So Scotty Scheffler winning a major would not be a surprise to anybody. So he's right there. Um, but you got, I mentioned Corey Connors, you got Victor Hovland, Dustin Johnson, at two under. Some of the disappointments today to look around, you have John Rahm, Bryson DeChambeau, both shooting one over. Now, that doesn't put them out of contention, but it's a, it's a tough start to the tournament. I'm not surprised to see Bryson struck, you know, shoot one over. This isn't exactly a driver's course. Um, that's his bread and butter. He does have strengths other than you know, his, his ability to drive the, the uh, golf ball. But you know, that, that's his bread and butter. That's what he's known for. And it's not exactly the easiest course to, to do that effectively. 
John Rahm, on the other hand, played well at the Scottish Open, finished in the top five following his win at the U.S. Open. But maybe as a strong day tomorrow, but the key to him winning the U.S. Open was just not having a terrible day in, on day one. He shot two under at the U.S. Open. He stayed in contention. One over is not, you know, that's seven strokes back. That's tough. It's a lot to make up. You know, guys will drop strokes, of course. But, you know, if he could have shot two, three under today, he's right in there. And you may scare some people into mistakes because you're like, well, that's John Rahm. You know, this isn't Stuart Sink or Brian Harmon chasing me. This is John Rahm, one, you know, the number one golfer in the world. And he has that aura now. He's always been a great player, but now he's a major champion. He's broken through. You know, nobody will have the, the tiger effect ever again in the history of the sport. But seeing a John Rahm a few strokes behind you, I believe it did something to Louis Ostazen. He, you know, flopped 17 because he knew that Rahm finishes, finished his day birdie birdie and he had to adapt. So I think Rom being in contention early in the week can have long-term effects later in the week, but we'll see if he can, if he can have a good day tomorrow and kind of get back in the mix here. Uh, Justin Thomas's season continues to struggle. He shot two over par today. He's just, he can't hit a fairway. He's one of the best golfers in the world, but it's been a really disastrous season for him where he, to simplify, he just, he just can't hit fairways. His driver is completely gone on him. It's become such a weakness in his game, and it looks terrible. Um, obviously, you want the fans, all of us want Justin Thomas to be in the mix, want him to be a factor, but right now he's just not. And two overstart to this tournament is a really it's a disappointment for Justin Thomas because we know that he's capable of so much more. And at the majors this year, he really just hasn't been a threat to win. And that's as big a surprise as anybody on tour to see him not in the mix for a potential British Open championship here. Um, Patrick Cantley, four over, another great player. You see Harris English, Lucas Glover, two guys that have won in the past three weeks on tour. Um, but the tough, tough one today is Phil Mickelson. Shoots 10 over par, the worst score of the day at the Open Championship. But this tells us what Phil is. He had that unbelievable four days to win the PGA Championship. And at 50-plus years old, I don't think that'll ever happen again. I'm shocked it did. But this is the after effects of what can happen. He just made the cut at the U.S. Open, came down to the last couple of holes. But here, again, he's done. You know, pack your bags, trunk slam. Phil is going, going home after two rounds, 10 over par. But this is what it's going to be. Occasionally, he'll make a cut. Maybe you think, okay, he's sniffing around. He can potentially be in the mix come Saturday, Sunday to major. But I'd say that happens one every four. You know, one, uh, the next couple of years, I think one, potentially two every year, he will be in the mix to make a cut, potentially be a threat. Other than that, he will be missing the cut by many strokes because he's 51. You know, he's, he's not the golfer he used to be. Guys are a lot, are just so much better than him now, just con on a consistent basis. Guys have improved their nutrition, the way they the way they handle themselves, and just the style of golfer. I think there's more great golfers right now than there has been in the history of the game. So that's very tough for anybody, let alone a 51 year old man, who, yeah, he's in the best shape of his career, but he's 51, and it, it's going to be 
it's going to be difficult for him to be competitive with the rest. And, you know, his, his driver has never been his best stick. You know, he, he's struggled with that his whole career where Rick can spray. If it happens, you see that in the first tee, you know, it's going to be a long day for Phil that happened today. And it was just a train wreck from there. So heading in tomorrow, you got uncle Louie at six under at the top. You got Harmon and speed five under St. Hughes Simpson at four under. So those are the, the, the top six guys on the leaderboard. You have guys lurking, like I mentioned. We'll see if DeChambeau and Rom can make it interesting. See if two past um, U.S. Open champions can rise to the top here. See if they can get back in the mix. But to start this Open Championship, again, it's, it's a lot of names where you say, hmm, Louis, Harmon, Sink, even Mackenzie Hughes. These guys are, are the ones at the top of the leaderboard. You know, things can change in a hurry in golf, but we'll see what happens tomorrow on day two and uh, what the cut line sits like. And I'll update you guys uh, accordingly as the uh, tournament goes on. Pivoting from golf, I mentioned hockey. And it's not expansion draft yet. It's not free agent frenzy. There's no trades yet. We saw the Duncan Keith trade, but there's nothing else to report. The big news last night was about 10 o'clock. I'm watching game four of the NBA finals. And it comes across my, my screen on my phone that Shea Weber could potentially be done. His career could be finished because of nagging, sorry, nagging foot slash ankle injuries. And I know he's dealt with foot problems before. Um, he's had plantar fasciitis a number of times. He's had Liz Frank surgery, which isn't easy. He's broken his foot a number of times. So there is wear and tear. But it comes out of left field because we just seen Shea Weber play an entire playoff series where he played 11, 17, 22 games um, in a couple months span where he played heavy minutes for the Montreal Canadiens. He was their most important defenseman, penalty kill. He played in all the big moments, and he didn't look out of place. But now you start to think. After they lost the Stanley Cup, every Montreal Canadian was upset, of course. But who was crying the most on the ice? Shea Weber. And at first I think, well, it's just because Shea's a veteran, and he may never get back to the Stanley Cup. But what if it was because, yeah, half of it might be, I'll never get to raise Lord Stanley, but the other half being, I may never be able to step on the ice again. And doctors are saying that Shea Weber will definitely not play next season. The Montreal Canadiens are going to make him eligible to be selected in the Seattle expansion draft. And his career is likely over. It's more likely than not that Shea will never play hockey again. Now, obviously, in the Montreal Canadiens, this is a huge effect. He's their captain. He's their leader. He still, to me, um, is their – could, I could say Jeff Petrie is the best defenseman in the Montreal Canadiens, um, but Shea Weber still plays on that top unit. He's, he's great at what he does. He brings that physical presence, and he's different than Jeff Petrie because of that. Um, he's a perfect pair with Sherratt. So this totally affects the top four of the Montreal defense. Now, they do have Alexander Romanoff, which he looks to be a great player. I think he will be a star in this league. But, again, 
losing a player of Shea Weber's caliber is, is massive on the team. So Montreal heading into next year, that's a huge dent. And here's the bigger deal. Shea Weber have, has five years remaining on his contract. He signed a huge deal with actually the Philadelphia Flyers. They signed him to an offer sheet a number of years back. And the Nashville Predators matched that. So Nashville got him for, I believe it was 12 to 13 year deal. And what happens now is, well, he's got five years remaining. And if Shea Weber was to go on, if Shea Weber is to retire because he can't play anymore and he does not go on long-term injured reserve, the Nashville Predators are going to be hit with a cap penalty. It's called cap re- salary cap recapture, where if a player retires, if um, you see with, with buyouts, you don't just get to buy a player out and get off scot-free because you still sign the player to that deal. Nashville matched the offer sheet from the Philadelphia Flyers to keep Shea Weber's services. And because they did that, they are responsible for him moving forward. And I get it sounds confusing that it's not the Montreal Canadiens, but it's, the, it's Nashville because they matched the offer sheet, the structure of the contract. It can get confusing, but trust me, I'll try to get you there um, along with me. So if he was to retire, they have to pay a cap recapture penalty. And basically what this does is they are, they are take, their salary cap is taken from them. So if he retires in the year 2025-2026, National Predators will have $24.57 million in dead cap money on their books. What this, mean is, what this means is they will what say salary caps 80 million right now it'll be higher than that in 2025 2026 if it isn't that means there's another pandemic and you know we're more fucked you know than we are right now but just for reference right now 80 million that would mean 24.5 million the national predators are not able to spend on their cap so that means they would have 56 million a little less to spend on their salary cap out of 80, they would have that taken from them. And it's absurd because it's really not fair, but it's how the deal was struck. It's how Philly, you know, they loaded at the end and it's about, you know, the money he's only making $12 million in salary over the next number of years, but the cap hit is bigger and you got to pay the piper when it comes to your cap it over time. You get relief at the at the front end, but you get a dent in the back. We the precedent for this was Roberto Luongo when he retired with um, retired a few years ago. But because Vancouver had his services originally, they signed the deal with Roberto. Right now, they have an over two million dollars in dead cap money, and that doesn't sound like a lot. But an $80 million flat cap and Vancouver has no cap room, it becomes a hindrance. We see the New York Rangers, Brad Richards, they bought him up. They're still paying him money. Um, so it happens where what happens normally is a player goes on long-term injured reserve and you actually get cap relief from that. Now, a player is basically retiring when they're a long-term injured reserve. But what they've done is that they prove that they can't play anymore. They failed a physical, or we've seen that with the Toronto Maple Leafs. They love to do it. Joffrey Lupul, Stefan Robidai, 
David Clarkson. They take on contracts that give them a little bit of cap relief and it gives them more options. So, but in this case, it's sounding like Shea Weber is not going to, is will retire. And, you know, I don't think it's going to happen this year. You know, they said he, he's not going to play this, this upcoming season. Then they'll wait and see. They'll probably do another medical report on him. If he fails a physical, then there's decisions to be made. But there will likely be a grievance between the NHL and the NHL Players Association because I'm sure the National Predators are going to be pushing for Shea Weber to go on long-term injury reserve with the Montreal Canadiens. That would be their obviously their preference because you can't have a team take on $24.57 million in dead, dead cap money. It just can't happen. But that's what the league's precedent is. So they may, it would be the league going against what they've already set their, their, their standard as if they allow Shea Weber, if they allow the National Predators to have some relief. They match the Philadelphia Flyers' offer. They knew what they're getting themselves into. They know the risks. And of course, you don't at the time expect the number one defenseman, the captain of the National Predators to potentially retire five years before his contract is up, but it's always an option. You don't expect Barry Sanders to retire at 30 years old, but he did. You don't expect Calvin Johnson to retire at 30 years old, but he did. This happens. Injuries happen to young players. Bobby Orr, do you think he expected his career to be done at the age of 30? No, but that's what, that's the break sometimes. And, you know, it's sad, you know, that Shea Weber, a two-time Olympic champion, a gold medal winner, um, one of the best defensemen in his era, his career might be over. You know, that, that's, that's, that's sad for me. Um, I, I love Shea Weber. Um, I think even if you don't like the Montreal Canadiens, you can respect the hell out of Shea Weber because of what he does. You looked at this last playoff, you have to respect him even more. He's battling significant injuries. You don't hear a word about it. You don't hear him complain. He just goes out there with Ben Chirot and he does his thing. He did that in Nashville. He was just a great leader, great player. And he helped the Montreal Canadiens get to the Stanley Cup final, their first Stanley Cup final since 1993. But, you know, this is what the cap does. I don't love the salary cap. It can get very confusing. I'm by no means a math major, uh, but... I'm just going off what reports I've read. I've read extensively about this through Darren Dreger and, you know, Elliot Friedman. So I'm trying to give you guys all the news that I know, but I'd rather have a salary cap than it to be a free market because what would happen is teams like the New York Rangers, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Montreal Canadiens, teams that have a lot of money would just buy up talent. Does that mean they're going to win every year? No, the New York Rangers did that for a long time and they struggled. You know, signing Merrick Malik to a terrible contract, Bobby Holik, just deals that really blew up in their face. But I like to see a league where any team can win. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Tampa Bay Lightning would have no chance, slim chance, of winning a Super Bowl or a Stanley Cup if there was no salary cap. And that's just a fact. Because the Tampa Bay Lightning are not going to be able to spend the kind of money 
to the Toronto Maple Leafs, Montreal Canadiens, or New York Rangers, others, Boston, would be able to. And I like seeing teams that you wouldn't expect to see in a cup final get there. To me, having a competitive league is having talent dispersed throughout the league. And you think of a cap situation. The New York Rangers had a lot of talent, but they couldn't get over the hump in 2014. You think of Tampa Bay. They had a ton of talent in 2015. They couldn't get over the hump, but it's interesting to see. Okay, the LA Kings, a non-traditional hockey market. They, they've become somewhat of a traditional hockey market because of Wayne Gretzky, but even now, you think of LA, you don't think, okay, well, the LA Kings, yeah, the warm weather, warm climate, of course, that's the perfect destination for hockey. But with the cap system, teams like LA, teams like Tampa Bay, warm weather cities can attract talent just like everybody else. And you can win Stanley Cups because there's a set amount of money that you can spend and it doesn't give the higher ups the upper hand. You know, so there will always be people who hate the salary cap. And they're probably lease fans who think, well, we would just buy more talent. Or, you know, you could say New York would have won a cup since 1994. I don't know about that. But to me, we're, we're in a fair system. But this will be an interesting case study because Nashville, Shea Weber is not in Nashville anymore. But they will, I'm sure David Poyle, that management group, the ownership is going to be saying, Okay, we get it, Shay. You can't play. We know you're a warrior. We've seen you forever. We don't question your injury. But NHL, he's going on long-term injury reserve. He's not retiring because we're not getting stuck with this bill on our, on our cap where in 2025, 2026, we're not going to be able to field a roster. It's going to be very tough. We're going to have a roster full of 700 grand players. And who knows, league minimum could rise to close to a million bucks by then. If things go well and people start going to games again and our free market starts to open up, the minimum wage in the NHL, I think, will increase. I think it'll be more than 700000 I think it should. But what will happen here, I don't know. It's going to be a war between the PA and the NHL, which is never a good thing. But I'm sure Nashville will be fighting for their rights. But this is the interesting thing as well. How will other teams respond to this? Because I think other teams will say, well, Nashville, you knew what you were doing. But if a team comes out publicly and kind of has that opinion, well, if something happens with one of your guys, then you're stuck. If teams back Nashville in this fight, it tells me that they want to protect themselves from a player potentially doing this in the future. New Jersey got hit with this as well with Olivia Kovalchuk. He retired. They had dead cap money on their books. They're a team that doesn't spend any money. So they were getting higher to the cap, you know, to the cap floor because Kovalchuk wasn't playing. They just had cap money that they were burning through. So we'll see, but terrible news for Shea Weber. Obviously a guy I wanted to see much longer, seeing him play in the playoffs. He looked rejuvenated, but clearly his, his feet are just not able to withstand the grind anymore. And it looks like he's on his way out of the NHL. And at the age of 35, he's had a great career. I think he's a fringe Hall of Famer. But um, 
tough news today for Montreal and potentially devastating for the Nashville Predators in the next four to five years. Um, South Florida, I mentioned South Florida had a big day uh, in the world of hockey where this morning they bought out um, Keith Yandel, kind of the defenseman who they've wanted to get rid of for a while. They tried to trade him to the Boston Bruins prior to last season. He would not accept a deal there. They tried to, they were going to healthy scratch him, but Joel Quenville said, nope, I'm not going to do that. He's got the longest Ironman streak in the NHL during the regular season. He had a decent year. We get to the playoffs against Tampa. He had his struggles. He gets healthy scratch for three of the six games in the series. And um, th- those don't count against his Ironman streak, but it was always a tough relationship this year. The past couple of years were Yandel's an offensive defenseman. His defensive skills are limited. He will take unnecessary risks. He's a riverboat gambler, so to speak. And he's not everybody's cup of tea. And clearly Florida was tired of his act and they're ready to move on. So they'll pay a little over 1.4 million in um, dead cap money in, the, in two years from now. They get, so they get $4 million of relief this year. So they get him off the books and they kind of use that money today where they re-signed Gustav Forsling to a three-year deal worth $2.66 million annually. And they also re-signed Anthony Duclair, who was on a one-year prove-it deal last year, to a three-year deal worth $9 million. So that's $3 million per. So Forsling really, he stepped in last year, coming over from Carolina, played great hockey. Um, so he's a good signing. Duclair, I think, also had a good year. And I think what you want to do if you're Florida, see if Duclair can really establish some chemistry with Alexander Barkov. You can break up Huberdeau and Barkov, get them on separate lines. Duclair's a strong winger. He's got some bite. He can also score goals. He's an elite. He can, I think this guy's a 30-35 goal scorer. We haven't seen him hit that plateau yet in his career, but he's got all the talent in the world. He's confident. And you're playing with Sasha Barkov, who's coming off a Selkie trophy. It wouldn't shock me to see Barkov be in the heart or the Ted Lindsay discussion. Um in the coming years, because he's just such a big center. I think you can put, I think you could get 90 points and also win a Selkie for Barkov uh, easily because the guy's so big. He's so talented. He's got a great shot and, you know, his passing ability at his size and the way he moves Duclair could be a huge piece to him winning another major award because Duclair can, can score. He's not just a guy who's going to go to the net and tap in ugly goals. He's a guy that can score, from prime positions. I think he can be a power play player for Florida move uh, going forward. And clearly they saw his value off a one-year prove-it deal where he turned down an extension in Ottawa because he thought there was more out there. I don't think he got the money he thought he would, but you see now he gets three years of, you know, guarantee that you're going to make that money and that you're going to be in Florida. Um, So he takes that and good for Anthony Duclair. When it comes to Keith Yandel, um, I think it's good for him to get a fresh start. Obviously, he's got the Iron Man streak. That's always going to be talked about him until he's either hurt or healthy scratched in his career. But he's run his course in Florida. He had a good run in Arizona. They decided to leave with him. Six-year deal from Florida. He's He didn't have a great tenure in Florida. Again, he, he is what he is as a player. He's not really willing to make a huge change. I look at Keith Yandel like Phil Kessel. Now, when it comes to their, you know, being in shape, so to speak, but Phil and Keith are similar in that they are who they are. They're not going to change. They're really, they're, they're steadfast in who they are as players. And 
they're going to have their warts. They have their faults as players, and you're just going to have to deal with it. Now, he's always rumored to go back to Boston because he's from the area. Um, I don't love that for Boston. Um, he would be different. You know, McAvoy is not exactly an offensive defenseman. I think he's an elite one. I think he's an elite defenseman, but you got him. Carlo is not there. Kevin Miller just retired. Tory Krug is gone. So the more I think about it, yeah, he would be a fit, but of course that's, it's all depending on money and Boston has a set cap structure where you're only going to get paid what you're worth. And they also need to resign to Garask. They need to decide if they want to resign David Krejci. Um, it's been reported that they have a, basically a handshake deal with Taylor Hall right now, but that remains to be seen. They're not going to sign him until after the expansion draft so that they have one last player to protect. So um, does Taylor Hall come back? So they have some d- decisions to make on their own. They also have Sean Corrali, who's going to be an unrestricted free agent. But Yandel, he, he, I think he would be a fit, but I, I don't love it in Boston. I could see him. Um, I still don't see him coming to a, a Canadian team. Um, that's just not, I don't think he's, that's where he wants to be. Uh, he can't go to Boston, potentially Pittsburgh. We've seen Pittsburgh really jump on these type of players in the past. Like they thought Michael, you know, Michael Matheson is somewhere where he's got some offensive uh, game and he's got a little bit of productivity in his offensive game, being an addition to Chris Letang, potentially Washington, if they wanted to move on from Justin Schultz, Keith Yandel is basically another, you know, replica of him and probably a little bit better of, of a offensive producer than, than Justin Schultz at this point of his career. So we'll see what happens with Keith Yandel. He gets bought out and he will get a fresh start um, next season with, with a new team. And hopefully he can keep his Ironman streak going and potentially surpass, um, surpass the all-time record here soon. The other big news in the hockey world today is Zach Hyman, the Toronto Maple Leafs left winger who has had a couple of great seasons playing alongside Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. Um, he's, Really, what, what Zach does is he's the, he's the worker bee. On that line, he will go into the corner. He gets the puck. He blocks shots. He penalty kills. And he plays a really good player, so he has great numbers. He's a 20-25 goal scorer a season. He'll get 40 to 50 points. And, again, it's just his work ethic is really what stands out about Zach Hyman when you say, this guy is the real deal. This is why we want him on our team. And – but the news today is the Toronto Maple Leafs would love to keep Zach Hyman because losing him would, would hurt them a lot. It, it ruins, it hurts their top line. You still have two of the top 25 best players in the league, but you lose the guy who's willing to go in the corner and get the puck. Uh, Marner and Matthew has gotten better at doing that, but Hyman knows that's his role. He'll go do it for anybody and he'll give them, give them the puck and high, high danger opportunities to, score some goals and put up points. So what really is, is the problem here is they're at an impasse because Zach Hyman wants more money than the Toronto Maple Leafs can afford to spend. Toronto, if they had cap room, they would give Zach Hyman money to stay. He's a homegrown talent. He was originally drafted by Florida, but he did not, he did not sign there uh, coming out of college. He wanted to play for his hometown Maple Leafs, but he, he played, he's played there, he's re-signed, but in his past couple of years, he's had great seasons. But he's 30 years old. He's had some knee injuries. 
And, but his value is higher right now than it ever has been because of the value that he brings. But I think Toronto can spend $4 million to $4.25 million on this player. Anything higher than that, you just can't. Toronto has lost too many contract negotiations for them to go spend money five plus million on Zach Hyman. It just can't happen. And looking forward, Zach can go get five, five and a half. I think he'll get that on the open market. Maybe not five and a half. I think he'll get five million. And, you know, I hear on Twitter, some Leafs fans are saying, well, Zach Hyman's so selfish. Well, why didn't Matthews, why didn't Marner take pay cuts? Why didn't uh, William Nylander take a pay cut? If you want Zach Hyman that bad, take a pay cut. This is not about Zach Hyman. Zach Hyman worked for this contract. And he's a free agent at 30. This is it. I wouldn't. Signing Zach Hyman to a contract for more than three years to me is really high danger. Because I could see this guy being a long-term IR guy in five. Shea Weber's 35. I could see Hyman being in the exact same position, you know, a few years down the road. Because how's he going to be? He's had an ACL. He's tore his ACL. He's had knee, knee problems. He partially broke his foot. He's not going to get any healthier as he gets older. And he's had so much chemistry with Marner and Matthews. How, we don't know if it translates. And I don't think he'll be as effective as a player without, without them. Obviously, they're elite players, but he knows where they're going to be on the ice. And that's going to be an adjustment for him wherever he goes. And I... I would, it worries me. I think Toronto is better off letting him walk if they're, if the job is to pay him five plus million. I think even four and a half is a lot. Now, again, Zach Hyman deserves whatever somebody's willing to pay him. And if a team has a bad idea and they give him a bad contract, that's too bad for them. But Zach Hyman's, when you're an unrestricted free agent, you get to hear every offer. And if he makes, a certain amount of money, good for him. Louis Erickson's deal is terrible. Milan Lucic's deal is terrible. But those are those teams' fault. You know, maybe the Calgary Flames, well, Edmonton Oilers at the time, should have watched the NHL and saw that Milan Lucic at his speed would really be an ineffective player. And maybe he'd be a Corey Perry, like in the playoffs, and he'd be great. But in the regular season, when Calgary never makes the playoffs, or Edmonton didn't either when he was at his one year there, it looks horrible. And that's what teams really need to think about here. You have cap room. Cap space is, the most val- is more valuable right now than it ever will be because we're in the midst of a pandemic that seems to be never fucking ending. And I'm sure the NHL is thinking the same thing. They're just hoping they can play games in Canada next year because apparently it's impossible for us to do that right now. MLS, I see your report. They're going to be playing games this weekend in Toronto, Montreal. No, federal government still reviewing it. Great. Like, fully vaccinated people can't go to an outdoor stadium and watch a GD soccer game? Give your fucking head a shake. But, again, the Leafs take a, take a beating. They get talked about way too much. Um, for what they do, which is nothing when it comes to winning. Teams deserve to be talked about that win. His Shea Weber story is so much more, is a way bigger story than the Zach Hyman one, because you know why? 
Shea Weber's a better player, and the Montreal Canadiens were just in a Stanley Cup final. Something Toronto could only dream of. But is Zach Hyman a really good player? Yes, he's a good player. Could he look at, if I'm a team, and you know you're going to have to pay him probably north of five for him to come, I look at that Ryan Eugene Hopkins deal. He's making 5.125. I can't go above that. Now, I'm not giving him eight years, but even on a shorter-term deal, sorry, Zach, this is where I'm at. I'll give you 5.125. You can match Nugent Hopkins, even though I think I think they're close. I would probably, it depends on your makeup of, the, of your team, but I would probably take Zach Hyman over Nugent Hopkins because Zach provides something different. More and more teams have skill nowadays because skilled players are all that come in the draft. Having those hard-nosed guys that go into the corner, they're unicorns. The Josh Andersons, the Tom Wilsons, the Zach Hymans, the um, players of that ilk are few and far between. And Nugent Hopkins is just one of many skilled players in the NHL, and he's not exactly at the top of the list when it comes to the most skilled players in the NHL. So it's decision time. Clearly, Toronto, they've given permission for, for Zach's agent to reach out and contact other teams about a potential trade uh, prior to um, prior to free agency. So they can, what, what would mean, what happens with that is they, they're, a team would um, trade from him and they'd have a number of days that they're the only team that can communicate with Zach Hyman about an extension. If he gets to a certain date, then he's fair game as the talking period and he can talk to every team in the league. A team could acquire him right now, today, and for the next week, they would be the only team that can chat to him about what, well, what's going on. Say, okay, this is what we're willing to pay you. Are you interested? This and that. And he would never get to free agency and he wouldn't know what's out there. But we see this happens and sometimes deals are done. Sometimes deals get done because a guy just accepts what's on the table. Frederick Anderson signed a deal the second he arrived in Toronto because of, I think, a fear of unrestricted free agency. I'm not sure how he feels about it right now. I think that's why he wants to stay in Toronto because he knows what Toronto brings to the table. And he know, he's comfortable in that scenario where he'll go to the unknown and maybe his play, his injuries, he's got to face the music in here. You haven't been that good lately. You got replaced as a starting goalie in the playoffs. You're constantly injured. Like, you think you're worth this money? It's like salary arbitration. It can really damage a player's psyche to hear everything negative about their game. There's nothing positive in a salary arbitration because the team wants to, wants the arbitrator to hear what you do, you know, what you're imperfect at. And then it's pointed out, you hear all of it, and it can sour a relationship and potentially lose you money. You want to go in there and say, this is what I do. I do this, this, and this. Well, well, for a guy like Freddie Anderson, there's not a whole lot that he can say that's been positive over the last 18 months. But Zach Hyman is still a made belief right now, but it sounds more and more like he will be playing elsewhere next season. And the Toronto Maple Leafs will have to address that. Obviously, that's a huge hole in their lineup. And Wayne Simmons is not covering up Zach Hyman's loss. Wayne Simmons can hardly be Wayne Simmons right now. You can't expect him to be more than, more than that for this team next season. So 
we'll see how they address that and uh, what else they do in free agency as that that's coming up next week. Um, before we get to the NBA finals, touch on that quickly. The MLS, Major League Soccer. Um, it was an, I mentioned I just mentioned this in my little rant, but they were approved to play Toronto FC and the Montreal Impact were approved to play at home for the remainder of the season starting Saturday with limited capacity with vaccinated uh, fans allowed to go into the burn. And that seemed great because you know what? It's July. It's pretty warm and they're outdoor stadiums. So that, that makes a whole lot of sense. Right. Then about an hour later comes out. No, the federal government's still looking into this plan. They don't want to approve it because then the blue Jays feel like they can return home. And that would just be too much headache and all. This is my problem with the government and this whole pandemic. We're getting vaccinated. We're doing what we're supposed to do, I guess. Uh, because, you know, if you're not, if you don't get vaccinated, then you're a social pariah. Just to be honest, I've been vaccinated, but the amount of people on both sides of the ledger that want to tell you that they have been vaccinated or haven't been vaccinated is quite staggering to me. It's like a friggin', it's like a hockey player getting off the ice. He's just horny as hell. He can't wait to find a woman. People are just like, oh, I'm vaccinated. I'm not. You know, and then it just starts this pinball effect where you're like Miss Pac-Man chasing the fucking ghost. Nevertheless, we're told that getting vaccinated is the right thing to do. And you know what? Yeehaw. I, I do everything for the people. So let's, let's do it. And, you know, we're kind of promised you get vaccinated. You're going to be given different freedoms than other people. And sounds good to me. That makes sense. I'm doing the good of the people. Let's give me some advantages. Who doesn't love an advantage in life? But, and that would include sporting events. Um, but to this point, we're not playing sports, professional sports in, in Canada. We haven't played a, with, with fans. Why? We're getting vaccinated. We're doing what we're told, but we still can't get into open air stadiums to watch a sporting event. Again, health and safety tell us it's safer outdoors than it is indoors. All of this bullshit that clearly is bullshit because why aren't Toronto FC and Montreal playing on Saturday? Now they could come out tonight and announce that they are. It still doesn't matter to me because it should have been a done deal. There should not be another report. You see, if you look into it, investigate this shit, they, they've had this on their table for months. Toronto Blue Jays had a request to start the year to play in Canada. It was denied. Why aren't the Toronto Blue Jays playing the Texas Rangers this weekend in Toronto. They should be. And just for the record, it's not, okay, yeah, the Toronto Blues is playing at home. They can't go to a, a shoppers after they play the game. No. They're coming home, and when they do, they're living life. Because guess what? Teams coming from opposing countries, or from the U.S., aren't sitting in a hotel the whole time. That's over. That's 18 months of this. It's done. And I just think it's ridiculous that our medical staff, our government, are too, you know, they're shooting 35 under at the no balls open. And they need to find something between their legs and make it, just make a competent decision here. Our economy 
our livelihood means something. And sports drives entertainment. It drives fun. It drives everything that's good about life. And to have that stripped for more than a year, when it comes to, we've seen a few fans go to a Toronto game. What was it? 400 of them. And they're all healthcare workers, Montreal, the uh, 3,500, like, come on, this is outdoors. This should be packed at least 50% capacity. If not more, it's outdoors. That's what we're told forever. No masks. I'm not sitting in a mask in 33 heat outside. I'll tell you that I'm I'll sip a beer the whole game. Then I don't have to wear one, but it's just the people that live in fear and governments don't live in fear, but they're afraid to make the decision that could potentially be questionable and making a decision just to appease people. I get it. That's politics and its essence, but in this, how, how many people are you pissing off by allowing people to go to stadiums? Okay, if Karen and the Moon Mist guy uh, down the road hate it, who gives a shit about them anyway? They're incompetent. They don't know what's going on. And I get it. If you listen to me, clearly Dirk doesn't like it either. You're tired of this COVID chat, and I get it. But until fans are back in stadiums, I'm going to continue to lament about this because to me, it's ridiculous that it isn't happening. And we'll see what comes from this. But this weekend, I really hope that Toronto FC and the Montreal Impact are playing home games. And I really hope fans are able to go. And, okay, if you don't want to let people in that haven't been vaccinated, okay, I'm fine with that. But people that are getting vaccinated, that are doing something that you're basically, what's being told to people in the media is, you have to go get vaccinated. It's like it's like it's a you don't have a civil right, which I'm fine with. But if people are gonna do it, if they're doing what they're supposed to do, then allow us to live. Getting back to normal life is not okay. Let's allow 3,500 people in a stadium. No, it's fill the damn barn. I don't. Life has to get back to normal eventually. And it's more, it seems more and more like people and politicians just want it to keep, remain the same. And was life in the last 18 months really that fun? But anyway, um, we'll see what, we'll see what comes of this, but it's just completely frustrating to me that the Blue Jays aren't back, that you don't have the, these soccer teams playing right now. Uh, the art, every CFL team should have hundred percent capacity starting next month. I don't care if it's a Vancouver and it's an indoor stadium. Pack the barn. CFL hasn't been played in, 18, in a long time. Allow those passionate CFL fans from Saskatchewan, from Winnipeg, from Edmonton, from Hamilton to get their ass in the seats because guess what? They damn well deserve it. Yeah, healthcare workers and the medical people have worked really hard. But we've all gone through the same shit. And if you have the money to go to a game, you should have the option. That's all I'm saying. And right now you don't because everybody's playing in the States or you're doing this and then you got to quarantine. Then you got life goes on and life getting back to a normal state is fans asses in seats and not 3,500 fans in seats. I'm talking in the thousands and thousands and thousands where 
there's a there's an atmosphere when you're watching it on TV. I was going to get into the NBA Finals, but I might save that till tomorrow. Um, the next game is only, sa- uh, only Saturday, so it's a lean sports night. So I'm going to save the NBA Finals talk for tomorrow. Um, I like to end it on a, on a COVID note anyway. But like I said, we're, I'm going to be trying to do a roundtable podcast when it comes to the expansion draft. Hopefully, you can get a, a few guys on with me. We can do that in the coming days. We'll see what comes of it. Um, but as always, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the Open Championship tomorrow round two. I'll be back tomorrow. We'll get into the NBA finals and everything else from the world of sports today. And and any other news we get on the likes of Shea Weber or signings and any, uh, anything on the rumor mill and the world of sports as well. So as always, everybody take care, uh, stay healthy and get your ass in the seat. If you can, uh, have a great day.